happy Saturday and you are listening to Morning Meeting. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, buongiorno. Buongiorno. Benvenuti, uh, americano. Buongiorno, cara. Grazie mille. Uh, I just got back from Italy. Michael and I and everyone at Airmail was on vacation for two weeks. By the way, highly recommend everyone on staff takes a vacation at the same time. It's like the most quiet inbox ever. No dinging slacks, you know, nothing coming through the transom. It was pretty amazing. So Michael and I have been MIA for the last two weeks. I went to Italy with my family, my parents and my in-laws and my kids, which was wild, but awesome. And Michael, how did you spend your uh, your time off? I spent it here in the New York area, including a uh, nice sojourn up to Rhode Island for a small family reunion at my cousin's house. So it was quite relaxing. Thank you. Well, but we're back here. We're trying to catch up on work. I've had 18 cups of coffee. So I think we are, we have a lot to talk about, Michael, because we've got an issue chock full of goodness. And speaking of, since I didn't go to Italy, the one place I thought about I want to go this summer is in the new issue. We've got a wonderful piece out of Italy, specifically the Aeolian Islands by Elena Claverina, one of our writers. You probably know the Aeolian Islands and that sort of Michelangelo Antonioni's swept away kind of Laventura world, the volcanic archipelago in the Tyrrhenian Sea off the coast of Sicily, long been synonymous with rustic glamour. But as Elena points out in this week's issue, there's a string of islands. Many of them are well, more well-known as the, you know, whether they have hosted Uma Thurman or Princess Caroline or Dolce and Gabbana, Aristotle and Assis, Johnny and Agnelli. But there's a very small one that no one ever goes to. It's the last stop on the, as you take the hydrofoil to drop people off. And it's a little island called Alicudi. And it is population 120. It has no mechanized transport on it. In fact, if you, there's no cars, there's no Vespas, donkeys are strapped with supplies, be it Amazon boxes or refrigerators, and they're led up the hills by these tired old men. There's no restaurants. The one sort of place to speak of is the home of a local fisherman named Silvio who cooks fresh fish on the grill and he serves you wine and water all out of a single cup. So it's incredibly rustic. The women sell the produce from their balconies, but it made me think this is the place to disappear at some point this summer. Right. And if that didn't sound magical enough, Michael, Eleanor reports that there's a lot of magic actually happening on the island. And I'm talking about magic with a capital M. Apparently pigs and donkeys are rumored to fly. Black snakes are waiting in dark corners for those islanders who misbehave. And allegedly, as the lore goes, if women dip their toes into the water, they can fly to Palermo and abandon their husbands until morning. So ladies, consider yourselves enabled. Go have fun. No, beautiful photographs in the story, but it makes you feel like I said, one of those places you could just disappear and enjoy a very simple life for a while. This seems, strikes me as the kind of place that probably had a cameo appearance in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Possibly, right? Maybe. maybe. And by the way, good movie to rewatch this time of year. Yeah. Or watch the original, Purple Noon. Sure, sure. Which is, which I think is, you know, I prefer Alan Delon over Matt Damon. I'm sorry. It's just Don't go tough on Damon, Michael. Don't talk down on Damon. Okay. I watched Ford versus Ferrari over the holiday. Okay. I am a newfound Matt Damon fan majorly. Anyway. Okay. Moving on. We've got more things in the issue that we need to discuss. Well, Michael, of the many things that 
augmented in popularity during the pandemic. We had yeast, bread, consuming large quantities of alcohol starting at 3 p.m. Also, it turns out astrology was another winner of coronavirus. And we have a piece in the issue about a new app called Pattern that attempts to tell you more about who you really are by breaking down your personality traits based on your birthday, your birth time, other facts and figures about your birth. This is a, it's just a fascinating piece. It was founded by a woman named... Lisa Donovan. Lisa Donovan. And this app was launched in 2017. And she's never really done any press or marketing on it because it's never been needed. And apparently before it even launched, it had 30,000 users. Now she says that 3.5 million have been added during the pandemic alone. Pattern is beloved by Hollywood types, including Lena Dunham, Tiffany Haddish, and Issa Rae. But hilariously, its most famous user is Channing Tatum. He came across the app in 2019 and, and his video reaction that he posted went viral. He said, how do you know what you know about me pattern i don't even know if i want to know this stuff now he is an investor yeah what i love is like all things are cyclical right i mean 50 years ago the young baby boomers were into the dawning of the age of aquarius and lisa goodman's sun signs and all these things and here we are the wheel turns and we're right back even though we've got technology and apps it's just right back to a generation of millennials and gen z's acting like nancy reagan in the white house right? Just like consulting this before they make any important moves in their lives and believing that the stars can tell them not only what to do, but what they should do. But Ashley? Yes, sir. Are you a believer? (laughs) What do you think, Michael? Mm, I would say you're very skeptical. Look, as a deeply cynical person by nature, but also a rather cheerful one, I would like to believe and I'm always looking for answers. So when I read the qualities of a Libra, which is my star sign, yeah, I'm pretty much on board. Like, you know, it makes sense. Narcissistic, generally believe in a sense of fairness, like whatever. But no, I don't hold too much credence to it. And no, I'm not a big believer in astrology, but I embrace the fact that others do go out and enjoy, find answers to all the problems of the universe and report back because we certainly need them. I know you often feel your alter ego is Alvy Singer in Annie Hall. I feel like I get in these astrology conversations or at dinner parties, and I feel like a little bit like Alvy talking to the Christopher Walken character, Dwayne Hall, where when he confronts him up in the in the hallway at, in the bedroom at the night, and as Alvy says, like, I'm due back down on earth right now. I really got to get going. So that's where I am. Oh my God. That's one of my favorite scenes. Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights coming towards me fast. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of shattering glass. (laughs) Michael, if I'm not the number one fan of astrology, I am the number one fan of Emerald Fennell. And we have finally a marvelous piece by her in the issue this week about, of course, Cinderella. So Emerald Fennell is working on a new musical adaptation of Cinderella with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And they were in the theater in March of 2020 doing an early read through. And then, of course, everything closed. So nearly 18 months later, they have arrived at the Gillian Lynn Theater to start rehearsals. And it seems like the show actually might go on. But this is a really fun piece from Emerald about how she initially discovered Cinderella and why she thinks that she has such staying power. Cinderella is a promising young woman 
of a different sort. And I think that's what attracted, as she reveals in the piece. But what she really wanted to do, as you sort of touch on there, what she was digging into is like, she found, yeah, she says, some ickiness around the pr- central premise of Cinderella. And rather than shy away from it, she wanted to interrogate it, specifically the ickiness of why is it in so many fairy tales, are there supposed to be these lectures that the only time you're sort of to save yourself is to change yourself entirely, to make yourself over, to become beautiful by any means necessary. And then you'll be worthy of love. So she and Lloyd Webber wanted to explore this obsession with makeovers, with the quote before and after photographs that exist in our culture now and use Cinderella as a way to vehicle to dig into this, right? Yeah, exactly. It's very smart and subversive and thoughtful and all the things that we like about Emerald Fennell and also Andrew Lloyd Webber. So this is certainly something we'll be going over to London to see as soon as humanly possible. But Cinderella really could be subtitled A Promising Young Woman, right? Oh, yeah. It fits into her of very well. By the way, speaking of princesses, did you see that Meghan and Harry's Oprah special was nominated for an Emmy? Uh, I did. Thoughts? Thoughts? I mean, I d- it was brilliant television. Well-deserved. Yes, brilliant performances, right? All right, moving on. Congratulations to all the winners and the nominees. Michael, your favorite show was also nominated for an Emmy. What's my favorite show? Emily in Paris. <laughs> I have fond feelings for it. She got me through the pandemic. Something like it was just like eating a, you know, a macaroon every night. It made me very a nice little something that you could enjoy every night at the end of the day and, and left you feeling like things were, were going to get better. All right, that's it, Michael. I'm going to put in a request to get Lily Collins on the show. Bring it on. I love it. Yeah. She's bigger than Emily in Paris. Come on. She is way bigger than Emily in Paris. I was bummed that Ethan Hawks didn't get any nods for the good Lord Bird. Did you see that? I did, but it's always so strange, you know, and yet I was glad Tobias Menzies got nominated for his portrayal of now the late Prince Philip mm-hmm. in The Crown. Oh, he was so. marvelous. Anyway, all right. So lots of good TV assignments for us to watch. If you haven't seen any of the good nominees. But talk, talking about TV performances, mm-hmm. Ashley, I dare say the most riveting TV performance over the last four years was coming out of Washington, D.C. under the Trump administration. Wow. Right? Certainly, certainly. And we have a fantastic guest this week to talk about how he sees and what he learned about covering the Trump White House, right? Welcome, Michael Wolf. All right. Well, Michael, we have a very special guest here, the inimitable Michael Wolf, and he's here to talk about his third book about the Trump administration, which is just coming out this week. It's called Landslide. Welcome, Michael Wolf. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Michael, first of all, give us the, your brief synopsis, your elevator pitch about what the book is and how it sort of came together for you in the past few months. The book is The Final Days. So it tells the story from shortly before the election on November 3rd, right up in uh, through November 6th, through January 20th. And then in that Donald Trump's way of continuing all things that should end through the second impeachment trial. And then it finishes with the president in Mar-a-Lago. I have to say, Michael, it's 300 and some pages. I started it last night in an 
advance of the interview. And it, what do you want to describe it as? Riveting, page turner, unstoppable, but it is I will take all of those. Thank completely you. Completely compelling and mesmerizing. And if anyone could wrap their arms around the crazy train of the last four years and bring us inside it and help us understand the why and the how of it all. It's a magnificent piece of reporting and, and I can't recommend it strongly enough to everyone listening. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Michael, you have incredible access here, talking to many members of the Trump administrations, both throughout the course of his presidency. What were some of the challenges that you faced as you started working on the third book? Like, Was anyone hesitant to talk to you? Did you find that people were more eager to speak with you, given your previous work? Actually, the reason I really had no intention of writing a third book, two books about Donald Trump seemed to be quite enough. But after January 6th, I I was actually contacted by some people who I had known who were in, in the president's close circle who had cooperated with me on the prior books. And, and they said, this is a, this is a story. I mean, this is as mind boggling to them as to anyone else. And they said, if you do a third book, we will, we would be delighted to talk to you. And I thought, okay, I mean, uh, you know, this is a story like no other. And I thought, okay. I'll do it. And I had very little, there were almost no access problems, partly because I've done this so often before, but even more importantly, because the president or the former president decided to see me. He actually, he invited me to Mar-a-Lago. I interviewed him. And then when everyone else around him said, hey, Wolf is doing this book, he said, talk to him. He's a great guy. Talk to him. How did you find Trump, Michael, when you interviewed him? He seemed great. <laughs> I mean, there is this thing, and it's, I think we take it for it's a kind of certainly a truism that all presidents come out of the presidency worn. You know, they've carried a heavy burden, and you can see it in them and on their faces. Not Trump. Trump looked fantastic, relaxed, easygoing. He seemed to have lost weight, which I almost said to him, and then I thought, hmm, maybe better not say that. In a way, clearly he has not been changed by the presidency, and he doesn't even seem to have been in any way burdened by the presidency. He seemed in very good spirit. You touch on that at different times in the book where you sort of, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's, you know, you describe him as a guy who knew how to represent the president, represent Trump, but really in terms of then what comes after that, like in terms of administrating or an administration or creating things that move a government no interest in that, and the, and the White House really wasn't about that, right? No, and you know, I think if there's one sort of through line in these three books that I've written, it's partly about the way that he has been portrayed by a good part of the media. And I think it's it's wrong. I mean, he's been portrayed as a man who has sought power for to do things which many people believe are mendicious, but nevertheless, he has sought power for the reasons men seek power, to have an effect, to change things, to impose their will. He, They see him as a man who is a politician, who became a politician, who stepped into this role in Washington as a man, again, who wanted power. And I think it's completely wrong. He's a man who never became a politician, a man not interested in politics, not interested in policy, not interested in government, not interested in management. He has singularly, I believe, remained 
what he was, which is a performer. That's what he loves. That's what he's good at. And that's what he has succeeded at. Certainly hasn't succeeded at being a politician, but he certainly has succeeded in as a performer in speaking to his fan base and keeping his fan base around, devoted and in awe of him. There were so many revelations in your book. I had so many favorites. <laughs> I love the anecdote where Sean Hannity was writing ads for Trump against Joe Biden. But tell us, what, what were some of the most surprising things that you encountered, the biggest aha moments? The singular thing and the, what the essentially what the book is built up around is that the election happens on November 3rd and certainly by November Saturday, November 7th, everyone around the president, everyone, everyone in the White House, everyone on the campaign, all the members of his family uh, realizes uh, two things, that the election was lost and that there is nothing that can be done, nothing that Donald Trump can do to change that. So from November 7th, it is only Donald Trump who maintains this delusion, this charade, this delusion that A, the election was stolen, B, that this is going to be reversed. So it was one man, well, one man plus Rudy Giuliani, always adding another alarming factor to this. So again, that media report that the Trump, the Trump White House or the Trump administration or the Trump regime was going to undermine democracy and and imperil the democratic institutions of this country was entirely wrong. It wasn't. It was just this one man who had the power to do nothing. He had the power to do nothing because he doesn't know how to do anything, because he had no support, because the few people who he did have on his side were drunk and incompetent, because it was a man living in his own singular reality and not stepping outside of it, not bringing anyone else into it. So everybody knew, everybody across the government, everyone, everyone, everywhere knew on January 20th, Joe Biden would be the president of the United States, except Donald Trump and Rudy. So how did you interpret the events of January 6th? What was going through your mind when this all unfolded? You know, I was actually in Amagansett. I mean, totally flabbergasted by what was going on. I mean, I was not following it any closer than than anyone else. It was just that kind of kind of thing. You got a call from somebody say, "Hey, are you watching television?" And then you put on the television and you think, "Oh my God, what is going on on here?" Now, the curious thing is that that is not all that much different than what happened in the White House. The White House by January sixth, there was nobody in the White House. It was literally empty. I I mean, I tried to sort of count how many people there might have been at that point in the West Wing. And you're talking about a handful of people. Everyone had deserted. Nobody wanted to be near the president. Everybody was out of there. And the president was an almost entirely focused on this other delusion that he had that Mike Pence would somehow throw out the Electoral College votes and make him the president of the United States. So suddenly all of this stuff is happening in the street and the president and the Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and a few other people there, they were no more informed about this, about what was going on than I was in Amagansett. Speaking of Mike Pence, how do you interpret the unraveling of the relationship between Trump and Pence and where do you think it stands now? 
It was not a gradual unravel. I mean, Mike Pence is and has determined to be throughout this four years a loyal adjunct to the president of the United States. But then it, it came down to this notion of that the president had that Mike Pence could do something on January 6th, could throw out the electoral college votes and install Donald Trump as for a, a second term. So even for a person as loyal, as abject as Mike Pence, there came the moment when this was just, uh, this was beyond ludicrous. Even Mike Pence had to say, uh, are you kidding? Now, the interesting thing is Mike Pence said this again and again and again and again in meeting after meeting after meeting. I can't do this. I won't do this. There's no way I can do this. And the president in the throes of, of delusion and with an inability or lack of interest or just a kind of behavioral tick of not being able and not being willing and not needing to listen to anyone seemed to fail to hear what Mike Pence was saying again and again and again. And so right up until the last moment, right up until the morning of January 6th, the president of the United States still believes that Mike Pence is going to throw out the Electoral College votes and install him as the president of the United States. I mean, so we're talking, I mean, this is crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff, Michael. And I think when you read the book, what I love is like, because you pull it all together, we also saw, there was, we realized the information overload we had in those last, from November to January on. And your ability to bring context to all that is such a gift for the reader. And yet, on top of that, I find, like this moment with Mike Pence or other moments where Trump's gift, as you say, like for him, numbers are not numbers. They're simply because as a real estate guy, they're a place for him to begin a conversation, right? They don't mean anything, right? So, but, you know, when I look back, you've got this great detail that some people have keyed in on, which is the night of the election. Arizona hasn't been called yet. Very close. Lachlan Murdoch goes down to his father or calls up, you know, Rupert and like, I think we and basically says, I think we should call Arizona for Biden. Right. It's still very close at that point. Murdoch is you quote him, says him, then let's call it, right? And yet, which would put incredible gas into Biden's tank at that point. And you think about it, had Fox held off and not called it, it's much harder. My point is, once it's called for Biden, Trump has to claw that back and it's almost impossible, right? You're in that Florida recon, but like all these little what if moments, right? What if Lachlan and Rupert hadn't called it, hadn't told the news desk to call it, and then gone a different way? And, and again, we all know Trump is basically the luckiest man ever, right? He's always bad luck on his side. All of this goes back to the fundamental point that he did almost win this election, which is extraordinary. I mean, the campaign, he his campaign for re-election was probably the worst campaign ever run by a sitting president. It was, I mean, literally absurd. They were down at a pivotal moment. They were down $200 million in the hole, $200 million. They went in into the last weeks of the campaign being outspent by the challenger three to one. This has never happened. Right. And as you point out, then there's a great moment where the White House gets internal polling that shows Biden in the last week of the election, the Biden campaign's own polling is showing that the momentum has shifted. And it's that dangerous thing. And like, and everyone's saying like, it's 2016 all over again. Here we come. They were 
that close, right? They were that close, and they would have actually won other than but for the fact that the president is an idiot. You know, there are two, two, two pivotal moments in this when his polling people say, go to him and say, hey, if you're just a little more friendly to masks, that will give you a substantial advantage. I mean, he says, no, no masks, no masks. My people would never take masks. Forget that. And then there's, there's shortly thereafter, they go to him and, and say, if you are a little more friendly to mail-in voting that will give us this necessary edge. No, no way. And those are the two pivotal moments. If he had done those things, they would certainly have won. Which is also reminds me of like a possibly third pivotal moment, which was, again, fascinating reporting on your part, is Trump has COVID. He's in Walter Reed. There's Jared in the hazmat suit next to him. trying, to, And he gets the miracle drug. He's going to come out. They think they perceive a slight change in him. Maybe there's a way into... And, you know, I can't remember who it was. It was Meadows or someone says, listen, maybe there's an opportunity for you to come out and be a little more grandfatherly. Bill Stapian, the campaign manager, who really feels this is the opportunity You can show a different side of this man. This is what wins you undecided votes to show that you're a a sympathetic guy. Right. As you said, a sympathetic grandfather who might say, and he seems to nod and he says, yeah, okay. And then what happens is you say, gets on the helicopter, lands on the front lawn and just the power guy again. Yeah. Gets into character. But nevertheless, they came very close to winning this selection. And that goes to this other thing, which I can't, no one, I mean, it's the next big thing to be explained. I can explain Donald Trump's character. I cannot explain why that character has allowed him to capture the hearts and minds, the awe and adulation of this very significant part of the electorate. Yeah, on that note, Michael, I mean, we haven't heard the last from Trump and we haven't heard the last from those in the Trump orbit. Who do you think are sort of the winners and the losers of the Trump administration coming out of this period that you write about in Landslide? And and who do you think has some momentum politically going forward? I think it's all about what's what Donald Trump decides. We don't know who the winners and losers. Actually, everyone's a loser. It's the point about being associated with Donald Trump. I mean, one of his aides said said to me, "We're all Trump's mules, and when he has no use for us, he you know sets us free or he shoots us." So I don't think anybody comes out with a clear Trump advantage, except possibly Trump, of course. Well, Michael, this book is a marvel, and it is the ultimate read not just for summer 21 but for any time so we highly recommend everyone go pick it up you will not regret it it is a a wonderful way to spend a few days thank you right thank you so much michael have a great week okay you too thanks we got to pivot off of that okay i think let's give people something that will give them dreams instead of nightmares good dreams do you have anything what do you got then you've got good things you're always inspiring dreams what do you got i love it well okay so i have three tv shows to recommend i have actually one tv show and two movies the first is ford versus ferrari have you seen this of course I have. Oh, God. Has ever, is this too old for me to talk about? Maybe? No. I, maybe a lot of people didn't see it. Continue your Matt Damon crush. Oh, God. God bless him. So Ford versus Ferrari came out in 2019. It's a sports drama, which is probably why I didn't see it in 2019. But that was my loss because it's excellent. It's directed by James Mangold. And it stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale. The plot follows two guys, two friends, Carol Shelby, who's played by Matt Damon, and his British driver, Ken Miles. And these guys are dispatched by Henry Ford II 
to build a race car that can beat the Ferrari team at Le Mans in 1966. And they come up with, of course, the Ford GT40. Anyway, this is just a great, great movie. Yes, there's lots of racing scenes, but uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon are so good in this. And I just walked away loving every second and wanting never wanted it to end. Ford versus Ferrari. Okay, my second movie, Michael, which I guarantee you, you have not seen. The Four Seasons. The Four Seasons. Remind me. The Force. Uh, oh, I'd love to. It is a 1981 rom-com written and directed by Alan Alda. And it co-stars Carol Burnett and Rita Moreno, among others. And it, of course, it draws its name from the Concerti by Vivaldi. Apparently, I was reading up on this after I saw it, but the music in this movie revived interest in Vivaldi and the Four Seasons all the way back in the 80s. But the story is about three upper middle class married couples living in New York, and they all go on vacations together during the Four Seasons. So spring, summer, winter, fall. And one of the couples breaks up and a new beautiful young thing comes into the picture and it disrupts everyone's life. And that's just how it plays out. Now, this to me is like Alan Alda's version of a Woody Allen movie, but it's really fun to watch kind of as, as a historical artifact. My husband thought it was a work of filmmaking genius. I thought it was just okay, but it's still, it's an awful lot of fun and it just came onto Netflix. You know, if you want, this is not a rom-com, but you make me thinking of it. At playing a film forum, I don't know if it's still there, is if you've never seen it, called La Piscine which is oh! with Elaine Delon, Romy Schneider, a very young Jane Birkin, 1970, sort of like a menage a trois that becomes a menage a trois. Trademark that, Michael. It's been playing at Film Forum. So if you're in New York City, highly recommend that. Just, I mean, they're all at the heights of their seductive beauty. So anyway, that's just reminding me that with what you're talking about there. Okay, Michael, have you watched The Parisian Agency on Netflix? The Parisian Agency? The Parisian Agency. No. Is this like the sequel to Call My Agent? I wish. That's actually why I started watching it. I was hoping it would be something Call My Agent adjacent. No, it's a reality show. And the French do reality shows better than us. It's about a family of real estate agents living in Paris who specialize in high-end real estate, everyone's favorite topic. But it's really funny. And it's so different from the real estate shows that you see in the US because, you know, this is all about like a civilized family having dinners together around the kitchen table and selling charming apartments. Apartments. It's really funny. So I really recommend it. If, if you're looking for escapist television that's not keeping up with the Kardashians, this is where to go. All right. Well, that sounds good. You mentioned sports drama with Ford versus Ferrari. And it made me think we have a very cool excerpt this week by the writer Jerry Marzorati from his new book called Seeing Serena. And it's about his what he learned from reporting and covering and observing Serena Williams over the course of a year on the tennis circuit. So if you watched Wimbledon last week and you saw what Joko did and you saw Women's Worth Barty winning, I think tennis is, as usual, having a great summer. So good to see it back. So great little excerpt there. I highly recommend you check out. The one thing I want to recommend, and it's a little more sobering, but I came across it while I was in New York on break over at Madison Square Park on 23rd and Broadway there. And I'm sure many of you know the artist and architect Maya Lin, who began her career in 1982 with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, which was that blade of black granite slashed into the grounds. But she's back in, she's done this installation in the park. And it's, I find it very timely, very moving, very provocative. It's called Ghost Forest. And in a summer where we're seeing crazy heat domes and wildfires and the effects of climate change, this is about maybe 
a war of a different sort, a war against nature. And she's installed 49 Atlantic white cedars that are each around 40 feet tall in the middle of the park. They've all were the victims of climate change. It's stark. It's beautiful. It's provocative. I really recommend that you take a time to walk through it. And it just sort of makes you think, especially of where we are with climate right now. If you can't get to New York, you can take an audio tour of it, which is equally immersive on madisonsquarepark.org. They can take it to you there. But anyway, she's, I think, one of the most provocative and intelligent artists and architects working and, and something to see and to take in this summer. Marvelous. Well, Michael, on that note, I wish you a wonderful weekend full of provocation and inspiration. And will you please read us out, my dear? Please release us. But on that note, Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.